Radio. Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Mr. Jim Mannery on the topic, Bob Santa Maria, Communism, Capitalism and Globalization. This August 2007 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday evening apologetics lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Jim has been a consultant to farmers in agricultural marketing, has been a member of the New South Wales Executive for the Democratic Labor Party, and has twice stood for Parliament. Thanks very much, Arlette, and uh, thanks for coming along tonight. I think the, the second part of my talk is going to be about the economic issues in globalisation, and I'm going to have to ask for your indulgence for that area at sort of half past eight to nine o'clock on Friday night. That's not an easy subject to, to handle, so uh, um, I'll need your, to provoke your attention at, during that time and maybe we need a little bit of discussion during that time. Bob Santa Maria, according to many people, was a protege of Archbishop Mannix, which is basically true. Not long before Mannix's death, uh, as a very old man, he was interviewed on the ABC and he was asked a wide-ranging of questions and towards the end of the interview, the interviewer said, and what of Bob Santa Maria? And Archbishop Mannix simply said, Bob Santa Maria is the saviour of Australia. Stop. At the age of 21, in 1936, Santa Maria started a newspaper called The Catholic Worker. And in that newspaper he said, Communism is not a problem for us in Australia. Capitalism is. Now, there's probably 20 books written about the Labor Party split and Santa Maria. And most of those books are quite unfavourably disposed towards him and are very critical of him. One was written just a few years ago by uh, Ross, an academic, Ross Fitzgerald, and this is what he had to say. What other significant Australian has been so unbearably wrong in so many matters on which he posed as the supreme expert? Now, Clive Cameron, some of you are old enough to remember, was the minister in the Whitlam government. And for much of his career, um, I suppose, opposed the Santa Maria in many ways. And yet, towards the end of his life, he, he came to know Santa Maria and appreciate his contribution. Uh, and he said, not long before Santa Maria's death, Santa Maria is the most significant figure in Australian politics in the second half of the 20th century. Some of you will know the name Malcolm Mugridge, the famous uh, English journalist who came to Australia a number of times. Uh, when he came to Australia, he always tried to see two people. One was Barry Jones, and the other one was Bob Santa Maria. Uh, The thing Mugridge said about Santa Maria was, he said, he'd never known anyone with such ability and such a contribution to politics that had never sought to capitalise for his own career on what he contrib contributed. 
Uh, Muggeridge also said that he believed that if Santa Maria's parents had immigrated to Canada or United States or New Zealand or somewhere else, the young Bob Santa Maria would have been just as big of influence in those countries as he was in Australia. Now, I have three questions that I want to ask you which relate to the major part of what I want to say tonight. And here are three questions. I'd just like you to think carefully about these three questions. Number one, would you like to work in a job with a satisfactory income that's reasonably satisfying in itself and gives you time for weekends to practice your religion, relaxation, exercise and so on? That's question number one. Question number two, would you like a comfortable place to live in a nice community with no more than 40 minutes travel to and from work each day? That's question number two. Those that you are past the working age and retired, does anyone here? That maybe doesn't apply so much. Question number three, would you like to experience a sense of economic and financial security in your life so that you can concentrate on family, faith and other interests? Broadly speaking, who would answer yes to those questions? Hands up. What Bob Sandebringer focused on in the last ten years of his life is directly connected with those three questions. And there are three parts of my presentation tonight and I'll, I'll pause a little bit after each of those sections, after each three sections. The third section will be the biggest on globalisation and economic matters. Um, and Arlette has said to me that it's okay for me to pause for questions, but we're not to get into discussion during my presentation. So we can have questions, brief comment, and move on. The first part of my presentation, who was Bob Santa Maria and what was the scope of his work? Part number one. Part number two, what place did he have in Australia's fight against communism? And part number three, what was his response to neoliberal economics and globalisation? So those three sections. So, first of all, Bob Santa Marie himself. He was born in Melbourne in 1915. Uh, Sicilian migrants were his parents. They had a fruit and vegetable shop, I think it was Fitzroy. So as a young guy, he worked in the fruit and vegetable shop. And as many of you know, he died in February 1998, 82 years of age. He went to two Christian Brothers schools in Melbourne. One of his classmates was the well-known Labour Senator, Diamond Jim McClellan. He studied at Melbourne University, uh, where he had a law degree, got a, got a law degree and a Master of Arts. He was a very small man. I think he was probably less than five feet tall. One of the things that's continually repeated is a, a debate he participated in at Melbourne University in about 1936, when he would have been uh, 20, 21, uh, on the Spanish Civil War. And he ended his address with, Long live Christ the King! And the whole 
whole place erupted. The Catholics stood up and seen faith of my fathers. <laughs> so, it's often repeated. Um, he was the author of 15 social justice statements, uh, or I should say he drafted 15 social justice statements for Australian bishops. I suspect that was between about 1940 and 1954. It's very in that area anyway. But he drafted them in 15 consecutive years. Some of you are old enough to remember Malcolm Fraser, Australian Prime Minister. He said of Santa Maria this, quote, Santa Maria was a modest person. He never courted publicity or popularity. He never calculated opportunity. He profoundly influenced Australian politics. And Bob Santa Maria was significantly responsible for the introduction of financial support to independent schools. In the late 1930s, he formed the National Catholic Rural Movement. Bob and his wife Helen had eight children, and uh, Bob loved agriculture. He loved farmers. He was a real agrarian. Uh, and he used to send his kids for holidays out onto the farms in Victoria, to, to the farms of the, a lot of the farmers who belonged to the National Catholic Rural Movement. And in New South Wales, uh, uh, Bishop Hensky at Wagga, the German-born bishop, was a great friend of Santa Maria's and the National Catholic Rural Movement, I lived in southern New South Wales, he had quite an influence around Wagga and Aubrey and other parts of the Riverina in, in southern New South Wales as well as Victoria. In 1946 he wrote his first book called The Earth, Our Mother and that book had extraordinary uh, environmental insights. It's an amazing book for its time, extraordinary financial interest. Nevertheless, and, and uh, it had some insights in it about economics too. Uh, he wrote about the, uh, the problems of making efficiency as economists defined at the goal of economics. And he, he analysed that and tore that to pieces in 1946. But he was later to say that he wished he was able to gather them all those books up and throw them in a the fire because he didn't foresee one thing. He didn't foresee that agriculture in Australia would require much bigger holdings than he envisaged in the book. And he was ridiculed a lot in agricultural circles for that because they said he was promoting Italian-style peasant farming in Australia, which he wasn't really doing, but he acknowledges that he didn't foresee that to be viable as a farmer, you would require a much bigger area than you had previously done. Now, the scope of his work, um, most of you, AD 2000, sold in the Bank of St. Michael's at Belfield. He founded it, and he, he was its first editor. The Australian Family Association, he established the organisation. The Thomas More Centre for Youth, he established it. The mid-50s split in the Australian Labor Party. Well, it certainly wouldn't have happened without him. The DLP, he was never a member of the Democratic Labor Party. But it was his idea and he formulated its unique political strategy, which I'll talk about shortly.
He established the Defend Australia Association. You still see a representative of that on television. He established the, the Council for National Interest, which still operates in some parts of Australia. And in about 1940, he established News Weekly, which is still published. And in the 70s and the 80s, he was behind the formation of the Democratic Clubs in the universities. One Tony Abbott was involved in those. Um, as I think most of you know, he was a, skilled, a very skilled writer. Uh, he's one of the few people that I have met who was a skilled writer and a brilliant speaker at the same time. I've known a number of people who could write very well, and I've known a few others who could speak very well, but I haven't known many that are great speakers and great writers too. When he spoke to an audience, and some of you have, I know John Ford and Michael, and some of you have been at Bob Santa Maria's addresses, um, you could literally hear a pin drop. I mean, he's the most dynamic, was the most dynamic speaker I'd ever heard. Uh, just recently, uh, George Pell was involved in launching a book that was written about uh, his correspondence and launched at Sydney University. And uh, George Cardinal Pell said, well, I remember very well as a young man in Ballarat in the 1950s. I was in Barnell, Pell would have been in his 20s at that time probably, or late teens. And he said that uh, he went along with this, he was invited. Pell's father was a publican in Ballarat, by the way. Um, and he went, he went along and he said there were there was 600 people there. And he said, I'll never forget it. He said, it was an extraordinary presentation. He said, you could hear a pin drop and it was the most electrifying address you'd ever heard. Bob Santa Maria was a public intellectual, I suppose. Uh, but he was more than that. He was a political activist. But not a member of a political party. He was a political activist without seeking, seeking to promote himself as a politician. He, the organisation that he established, called the Movement and later called the National City Council, uh, was what he called a political weapon. And he took that, uh, sorry, an organisational weapon in politics, an organisational weapon in politics. And he took that term from the uh, American political sci scientist David Selznick. Jacques Maritain, the, the uh, French philosopher, uh, wrote on a number of occasions about the need in democracies for a creative minority of people. In other words, that it, Maritain reckoned that if democracy was to survive, there had to be a selfless group of people developing policies for the good of the country and the longevity of the country. Otherwise, purely ambitious politicians and vested interests would dominate the country. And uh, that's what Santa Maria tried to do uh, through the National City Council, was to develop policies as a creative minority that would eventually become policies for the government of Australia. Much of his writings and thinking was deeply influenced by Catholic social teaching, but not only that, he was an eclectic kind of person. He, he, he found a good idea from Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore or, or somewhere else on water saving or something like that that had nothing, absolutely nothing to do with Catholic social teaching. He would take on that idea as he did throughout his career. Uh, now, the communist issue. I 
do not propose to say a lot, lot about this tonight, and maybe we can cover it in question time. In 1941, uh, he was approached, I suspect by uh, the suggestion from Archbishop Mannix, by some people in the Labor Party in Victoria informing him that there was an, an emerging communist problem in the trade unions and in the Labor Party. Uh, that was the start of a major part of his life, which he called the fight against communism, which involved this. It involved him in uh, recruiting people to go into the trade unions and to oppose the communists, to stand for office in the trade unions and to win control of trade unions uh, from the communists. Now, he often said that right as those early days, he went to different, different Christian groups, but he found that in most cases, uh, almost all cases, the only people that responded to his request to do something about communism were Catholics. There were some others, but Catholics have always been very anti-communist, and uh, that was his experience. Now, that gave rise to a group within the Labor Party and the trade union movement called the industrial groups. So that was the industrial part of the fight against communism. But as many of you know, uh, the, the trade unions then, more so than now, I think, were intimately linked with the Australian Labor Party. And the strategy of the communists in Australia was to gain con policy control of the Australian Labor Party. In other words, to get the Australian Labor Party to adopt the policies of the Communist Party of Australia. Now that followed, um, back in the 20s and the early 30s, throughout the world, the communists controlled from Moscow had very little success in elections. You know, they'd stand for elections, they wouldn't get many votes, 1% or something like that. So in 1936, they decided in Moscow on the concept of the United Front. In other words, the communists would go into the labour parties and into the trade union movements of the world and get policy control of the labour party. So what they were trying to do in Australia, starting in the 19, early 1940s, probably the late 1930s, was to get policy control of the Labor Party, policies such as um, anti-Americanism. See, the world then was divided into uh, basically the, the democratic, le uh, democratic Western world and the, the pro-communist uh, uh, world. I mean, uh, at that time, uh, I mean, Russia, uh, Russia, the Soviet Union was the only co communist country uh, until after the Second World War. But there was a contest going on in the world, even at that time, and what the communists were trying to do here was to get Australia into the orbit of the Soviet Union. So there were policies like kick America out of Southeast Asia, uh, diminish the uh, defence expenditure within Australia, uh, and later on, after the communists took over uh, China in 1949, it was to recognise communist China and so on. So they... They were, the sort, they were the sort of policies uh, that the trade union, the, the communists of the trade union movement were, were trying to foist on the Labor Party. So that the fight that Santa Maria was involved in was a fight at the, at the industrial level, the trade union level, and at the political level. 
So successful were the, industri were the industrial groups that by about 1950, the industrial groups had actually gained control and kicked the communists out of many of the trade unions in Australia. They'd been highly successful in that particular objective. Now, there's a lot of things happening in this period that I'm going to run over, but the leader of the Labor Party in 1955 was Dr. Evatt. And uh, for a whole range of reasons, which time doesn't permit me going into, in 1955, he came out and he attacked Bob Santa Maria for leaving a church, an attempt by the Catholic Church to take over control of the Labor Party. The name Santa Maria at that time wasn't a publicly known name in Australia. I understand the Sydney Morning Herald and the Telegraph and the various papers were racing around trying to find a, a photograph of this bloke called Santa Maria. Now, whilst it was known in the trade union movement and, and by many Catholics, it wasn't the name that was known. Uh, now, that attack um, led to a split in the Labor Party. It led, at that, up until that point, what I'd call the, the industrial group forces, the anti-communist forces, were dominant in the Labor Party. But after that announcement by Everett and the subsequent uh, uh, conference of the Labor Party in Hobart in 1955, the left wing controlled the Australian Labor Party. And Santa Maria, the industrial groups, and those people that were anti-communist were left with, with the option of doing one of two things. They either stayed in the Labor Party and fought the communist influence from within the Labor Party, or they got out and they formed a new political party. Now, Santa Maria's argument was that by staying in, they would never be successful that what they had to do was to get out and fight from the outside. And I mentioned the political strategy earlier on. His strategy was simply this, to get out and to form a separate party, which initially was called the Anti-Communist Labor Party, but subsequently uh, became known as the Democratic Labor Party. And the strategy, I need a pen for this, the strategy was this. Uh, it wasn't that the Democratic Labor Party would become government, because they... Most of the people in the industrial groups that had been fighting communists in the Labor Party, they wanted to hang on to their jobs. So they stayed in the Labor Party. They said, look, we're going to stay in and fight. But Santa Maria's argument was, look, that won't work. We're going to have to get out and fight. We're going to have to form a new party called the Democratic Labor Party. Now, here's the strategy. Santa Maria said, well, look, if we, if the DLP can get 10% of the vote and direct its preferences to the, against the Labor Party to, the, to a coalition, it can keep the Labor Party out of power. And during that time, during the time that the Labor Party is kept out of power, the DLP people will talk to the Labor Party and say, look, if you guys get rid of your pro-communist policies, we'll join you again, and that way we can become government. Let me explain how this, the strategy worked. Santa Maria argued that if the, the Liberals and the Nationals, so let's say they got 45% of the national vote in the federal election, and the ALP got 45% of the vote, Okay. Now, 
We could use some other figures, but just use those figures. Santa Maria calculated that the DLP with their small numbers of people might be able to get 10%. And we had a preferential system of voting. The idea was for the DLP to direct its preferences against the Labor Party, to direct its preferences to the Liberal National Party. And the hope was that the DLP would be able to get 90% of their voters to direct their preferences to the coalition, to direct their preferences against the Labor Party. And guess what? The DLP over a period of 17 years was able to was able to get 90% of their preferences directed against the Labor Party. So in other words, if you have a situation, as happened in there were a number of elections between 1955 and 1972 when Gough Whitlam came to power. So if you had a situation where Liberal National Party got 45%, Labor got 45%, and the DLP got 10%, what happened? Well, get 55%. 90% of that, 90% of that, which is not 90% of that, which is 9%, would actually be added on to the vote of, of the coalition which would give them 54%, so they'd easily make government. So that's what happened in just about every election from 1955 until 1972. And during that time, the DLP and Santa Maria talked with the Labor Party people and tried to persuade them. They said, look, you silly buggers, throw out your communist policies, we'll join up with you again and we'll have a decent Labor Party. And it almost happened. There were two or three times when it almost happened but it never did happen. And uh, in 1972, there were some problems that keep bloke in the DLP, had a few too many drinks uh, with the Labor Party blokes, uh, a fellow called Vince Gare, and they offered him um, uh, a, a diplomatic posting in Ireland, and he took it. And that was, a, that was a, a, a big blow to the DLP. And that probably contributed to the the fact that the Labor Party won the 1972 election when Gough Whitlam came to power. How about the 1961 election? They were very close to winning. Very, very close. That was the one where uh, uh, it was a 10 days before the result was known. That's right. Very, very close. But in all of those elections, the, the preferences of the DLP were important. So that's just a little bit about the, uh, the communist, the anti-communist phase of Santa Maria. There's much, much more to it than that, of course. Before we move off the communist issue, are there any... Because there's much, much more... Uh, I mean, Santa Maria, I think it would be generally acknowledged that Santa Maria was, was one of the leading figures and one of the leading and most, most articulate anti-communists in the world. When I w first went to finish university and went to work on Tower Research Station, there was a, an English doctor came there, Dr Bill Barry. He came up to me and he said, I want you to contact Santa Maria because he said, I know you're in the DLP because we want him to come and talk here. And he said, he said, are you aware that Santa Maria is better known and more respected in England than he is in Australia? And I wasn't aware until that time. Okay, uh, so let's talk about global. Uh, now, this is the more difficult part, uh, but I need to talk about this in a way because, you know, like John Paul II, Bob Santa Maria was always up to date. He was never... He was never talking about yesterday's issues. He was always, you know, whilst um, I gave you those couple of quotes from Clyde, uh, Clyde Cameron and, uh, and Malcolm Fraser, 
You know, whilst his name wasn't in the newspapers, he was writing and talking and negotiating and lobbying about the major issues of his day. Um, and uh, so I've, I've got to talk about globalisation uh, because during the 90s, uh, he died in February 98, but during the 90s, he talked more about neoliberal economics and globalisation than anything else. He saw it as the great strategic issue of our times. In 1983, he actually had written that the concentration of economic power is the root cause of the economic, social and political problems of our times. And back in, I'd said before, in 1936, he'd said, communism is not a problem in Australia, it's capitalism. Now, what he meant by that was, it doesn't mean he, he didn't mean it was against all forms of capital, capitalism. It meant he was against the kind of monopoly capitalism and the domination of the, the type of world financial system that has plagued the world for the last 200 years. Uh, and of course, you know, he was like, John Paul II was similar in this, so one of the great things about John Paul II was, I mean, he, he was never harking back to, to lovely practices 200 years ago, as some Catholic groups do, and that's, I'm not saying that's wrong, but, but John Paul was always up to date, he's insignificant. He wrote about computers and the challenges of today. Santa Maria was the same in that respect. Now, as a background to neoliberal, when I use the term neoliberal economics, um, there's a number of words meaning the same thing, and I'll rattle off some of them. Economic fundamentalism, economic rationalism, laissez-faire economics, free, free market economics, sometimes simple economic reform. They all mean the same thing. But what, I, what was clear to Santa Maria and is very clear to me now is that round about 1980, especially in the English-speaking world, an economic revolution started. Major change in economic occurred and therefore in politics, especially in the English-speaking world. And I want to talk a little bit about that. I want to go back to 1944. You've all, most of you have heard of Bretton Woods. Bretton Woods is a little place <coughs> in New Hampshire. And it, Bretton Woods. Bretton Woods. The Bretton Woods Agreement in 1944, towards the end of the Second World War, there was a number of the nations met together uh, saying, look, we can't allow this to happen again. We've had two world wars in the last 30 years. We've got, we've got to do something to stop it happening again. And uh, the dominating figure at Bretton Woods was John Maynard Keynes. He's probably the most famous economist of the 20th century. And Keynes said, look, we've got to have, I mean, he said, we've got to get away from this situation where the finance world dominates where the banks of the world dominate everything else. We've got to get back to nation states where each state sets its own interest rates. The interest rates are set by the nation state where we have fixed exchange rates and we have limited movement of capital. And countries are able to restrict imports so that they can balance their budget. They'll all have some imports, but they'll be able to restrict their imports. 
Now that was the kind of formula that was put together at Bretton Woods and, and, and John Maynard Keynes won the day. And that was agreed to. And that led to what has been called the golden era of economics from 1945 to about 1972. If you look at the economic figures for that time in terms of economic growth, uh, employment levels, it's, it's probably better than any other period in the last 200 years. Now that was the sort of economics that dominated in that period. So what we had in the Western world were mixed economies. We had economies in which the market played a force, but government also played a force. It was a kind of balance between market forces and government regulation during that period, of, as we had in Australia. It was similar in the United States, New Zealand, and Britain. And most of the Western democracies had mixed, were mixed economies. The government had a major role. But with the oil crisis in the 1970s, something extraordinary happened in a way. There was the oil crisis, and then there was what they called stagflation. High unemployment and high inflation. And the politicians looked around. Of course, you know, the vast majority of politicians uh, only skim along the surface on these things. And it's still very much the case today. I mean, the economic profession is, is very powerful in these matters. And it was right back in the 19th century, the economics profession. So when the politicians looked around in the mid-1970s, they said, well, look, Keynesian economics, the, you know, the adjustments of interest rates and unemployment and, and playing those leagues, it's not really working any longer. So what did they do? Did they look around? Did they look at a number of options? And sort of say, well, this option, we could try this one, or we could try this one, or we could try this one. No, that didn't happen. What happened was the neoliberal economists were ready. The economic rationalists, the laissez-faire economists, the free market economists, the economists that wanted the border free world, they were ready. And they came in and they filled the vacuum. And they, they said, look, we've got the answers. Now the two leaders of those were the two names that many of you know. Friedrich von Hayek, the Austrian, who had a great influence on Margaret Thatcher, and the Chicago man that died just last year, Milton Friedman. They were the two leaders in the world of this economic thing, and they had a massive influence on the English-speaking world. You will remember, I think, that uh, Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister of Great Britain from 1979 to 1990, and Ronald Reagan was President of the United States from 81 to 89. You still hear, I, I was talking to a German the other day, and he referred to, he was talking about Thatcherism, they still call the sort of free market economics that, uh, that Margaret Thatcher brought into Britain, uh, that it's still, in Europe, they still refer to it as Thatcherism. And in the United States, that same brand of economics was brought in uh, under Ronald Reagan. What about Australia? Well, the economics profession, of course, has got links throughout the world. And that brand of economics was becoming dominant in Australia. I should know that well because this particular brand of economics was dominant in agriculture, in agricultural economics, right back to the 1950s. So there were people at Sydney University in the 1950s talking about neoliberal economics in the agricultural faculty. 
But in the 1970s in Australia, it spread to the general economics area. And uh, the influence of these economists in the Federal Treasury uh, led to the Campbell, in the Campbell Inquiry into the financial system around about 1980. Uh, the, the treasurer at the time, who knows who the treasurer at the time was? One John Howard. John Howard was treasurer, prime minister was Malcolm Fraser. Now Malcolm Fraser, uh, as some of you might know, had a very good working relationship with Bob Santa Maria. And uh, he was always, uh, you, any of Malcolm Fraser's writings, despite the criticisms of Fraser, Fraser never bought economic rationalism. Fraser never bought neoliberal economics. But Johnny Howard always did. And uh, Johnny Howard was treasurer, and he wanted to, uh, to implement the Campbell, uh, Campbell Inquiry to deregulate the financial markets, etc., and Malcolm Fraser said no. But in 1983, what happened? New government. New government. Hawk and Keith. And uh, um, Keating had spent a lot of his time, he was Shadow Minister for Mines and Energy, and he spent a lot of time, he says this himself, all over Australia down mines, talking to the miners. And of course the miners, as you won't be surprised, the miners wanted what the neoliberal economists wanted. They wanted lack of regulation, freedom for takeovers, freedom from all, all sorts of things, exactly what the economic rationalists want. So that when, when Keating went to Treasury, um, he was a kind of sitting duck for the economists in Treasury who wanted to, because as I think most of you know, Treasury is dominated by the economics profession. Uh, he, he was wide open to uh, what they wanted to do with the Australian economy. So what surprised many, many people that a Labor government would come in and want to cut tariffs and float the exchange rate and, and do away with subsidies to various sections of the economy, etc. That's what that's what that's what uh, Hawke and Keating did. Um, so just let me, without boring you, I hope, just mention some of some of the key features of this new brand of economics, which was sweeping the English-speaking world and to some extent some of the other Western countries. It consisted of, of this. Uh, opening up the movement of capital across borders throughout the world, deregulation and privatisation of industry. In other words, taking public assets and transferring them into private hands, floating the exchange rates, establishing property rights so that the big corporations could get patent rights and things and have those products produced in various countries that get royalties from the patents. Free trade, all the talk we've had about free trade. Tax reform, what did tax reform mean? It meant basically lower taxes for the rich and a consumption tax. So the, all, all the ordinary people, the GSP tax, that was what they meant by taxation reform. Uh, and very tight control of public expenditure. I mean, I'm not suggesting that, that Keynes' theories were right. There were problems with Keynes' theory in the early 1970s, that's for sure. But uh, in accord with Catholic social teaching, Bob Santabria always believed in a sensible balance between the role of government and the role of the markets. So he was against the new... Oh, yes, very, very, yes, very much opposed to the, uh, 
uh, to the new, the new brand of economics that started sweeping Australia in 1983. You're quite opposed to that. You know, uh, I mean, I'm oversimplifying a little bit because in Australia and in Britain in the 1970s, there were, and in Europe, there were some uh, trade union leaders that had excessive power and, and did stupid things and greedy things. So that opened the door to Margaret Thatcher and, and to, to people that wanted to lessen union power and, and to deregulate and so on. But you can also argue that the deregulation of tariffs started during Whitlam's time. It did. It wasn't just the eight, early 80s, it was even no, in, in the 70s. Well, that's true. That's, the Whitlam did that, the mass, massive uh, reduction of tariffs, yeah. So this change, the question arises, these changes, this new brand of economics, what caused them? Why did this happen? Well, my answer today is, and I think Santa Maria's answer was, that it was the finance sector. The finance sector of the world, led by the banks, was the major cause, strongly supported by the economics profession and supported in many parts of the media. One of the most important books on sort of the economics for Australia, etc., is a book uh, written last year by Ian Pettiford called The Coming First World Debt Crisis. In other words, the, co the Coming Debt Crisis in the Western World. That's the title of her book. And she says, and I believe if Santa Maria was alive today, he would broadly agree with this because her book, reading her book is a bit like reading Santa Maria. She says that this is the fourth time in the last 150 years where the finance sector of the world has tried to take over. The first, she talks the first globalisation crisis, 1873, which was the end of the Franco-Prussian War. And uh, it led into depression in many parts of Europe. And in Austria, the Jewish bankers were blamed. And this led to massive anti-Semitism in Austria. We're talking about the 1870s. Who was born in Austria in 1890? Hitler. Adolf Hitler. So Adolf Hitler was brought up with anti-Semitism, very strong anti-Semitism. Uh, but the crisis in 1873 came about because of uh, the free movement of the capital between countries and that kind of what we call today deregulated environment uh, that led to that crisis. Now, we haven't got time to go into it, but according to Anne Pettiford, the lessons weren't learned from that crisis and the same thing happened again between 1880 and 1914. Uh, in other words, there was a massive movement of capital uh, and, and what the banks do, of course, as is doing exactly what they're doing in America and Australia today, is they lend out as much money as they can. They lend and they lend and they lend because they basically create money out of free air and they make lots of profit from the interest payments they get. So this happened again and was a contributing factor to the, second, to the First World War in 1914. And after the First World War was over, Guess what? It happened again, and many of us know about this. Uh, in the, the night, you know, between the 1918 and 1929, and there was the the uh, the big crash of the stock stock market in New York and the depression of the 1930s, which 
the unemployment rate in America was 30%, I think it was 33% in this country. And incidentally, that was the, uh, a lot of the men that suffered greatly in the 1930s uh, in Australia were the people that became communists. Uh, and we, we talked about it earlier on. Um, now, back, let's, go, let's go back to Australia. 1996, what happened? You all know, 1996, what happened to Australia? John Howard became Prime Minister. So what, what did the Howard government do with the, these new economic policies that Labor had introduced? Just continue. They said, this is wonderful, but let's do more of it and faster. That was their attitude because, you know, the economics profession and key people in the National Party and the, the National Party of all parties, unbelievable that the National Party could adopt policies that were so, and I'm not exaggerating, so contrary to the interests of rural Australia. Just amazing that they could do that. Hard, hard for me to believe as a country bloke. So, uh, under the Howard government, what have we seen? More neoliberal economics, faster, more deregulation, more privatisation, more reduction of protection. And what is their policy for industry? The Howard government. Our policy for industry is to have no policy. We leave it to the market. And they've still got that policy. Their industry policy, truly, the industry... And I heard Joe Hockey saying the other, ridiculing the Labor Party the other day for not having an industry policy. <laughs> the Liberal National Party government's policy for industry is leave it to the market. And you know, I'll come to in a minute, our agriculture is on its knees and manufacturing industry continues to go backwards. Now, many will sort of say to you, well, manufacturing, how can you compete with China? We just can't compete. Shrug your souls, leave it to the market, do nothing. I mean, the reality is that Taiwan, Singapore, Ireland have done very well in manufacturing. A lot of their economic success is because of the success of their manufacturing industries in spite of China and the other low labour cost countries. So under the Howard government, if you talk to the economists in the government, they said, well, it, you know, it doesn't really matter if agriculture goes backwards. It doesn't matter if manufacturing goes backwards. I mean, this has been happening for 11 years and they haven't changed policy. They haven't changed their policies in spite of the evidence of these industries going backwards. They said, because their view is, well, look, we can have an economy of service industries plus the mining sector. That's their view for Australia. I think the claim is that 80% of the jobs in Australia today are in the services sector. And then, of course, there is their industrial relations reforms. Uh, some of you might have saw, seen the program on ABC last night where I thought Dr Jeff Gallup did a wonderful job, in, in best I've seen probably, in explaining. He, he argued, by the way, he said, look, the industrial relations policy that the Howard government has brought in is unsustainable. It's against the interest of our society. It's not going to last. We can't go ahead. We've got, it's got to be changed. That was his argument. It was very persuasive, I thought. Um, okay, so that's the Howard government. Now, in the 1990s, Bob Santamaria said, opposition to this brand of economics is the great issue of our time. The fight against 
neoliberal economics and globalisation, or more, the better term nowadays, is globalism. Globalism is defined as the economic and financial aspects of globalisation. I mean, changes in technology and, and various other things are part of globalisation, which you can't argue against, really. But um, the term globalism describes the economic and financial stuff. So, Santa Maria argued that Australia would lose its economic sovereignty and its political sovereignty. And we'll come to that in a minute. Incidentally, uh, during the 90s, Bob Santa Maria was not able to convince all of his supporters that he was on the right track in taking this line. I mean, one of his supporters was John Stone. Now, John Stone had been head of Treasury, so you wouldn't expect John Stone to agree with Santa Maria on this. Just a few days ago, I spoke with Peter Coleman, who had been the Liberal leader of the opposition in New South Wales, and he told me that he said, look, I sat through two hours of Santa Maria talking about this stuff, and he said, I didn't agree with him then, I don't agree with him now. Um, Peter Coleman's Peter Costello's father-in-law, by the way, so that might have some reason for his, his views. Uh, so Santa Maria wasn't able to take all his supporters with him on this particular issue. In his final speech, he died in February 98, in his final speech, he was ill, it was October 1997, was read in Adelaide by his son, uh, he said that um, really the fight against neoliberal economics and globalism is of the same importance to Australia as the fight against communism. Because in the end, they're both about who is going to run the country. So they're the same thing. And he appealed to his supporters to do two, three things. One was to do the intellectual work of exposing what the neoliberal economists are doing to Australia. Secondly, to develop in detail alternative policies for Australia. And thirdly, to gain public support for those alternative policies. Now, I'm, I'm getting towards uh, the end. One of the obituaries when Bob died, uh, died was uh, written by Les Carline. And uh, the very last thing he said in the obituary after talking about the fight against communism and so on, he said, and who knows, this is 1998, and who knows, Bob Santa Maria might turn out to be right about neoliberal economics and globalism. So, just probably my final thing is just to say a little bit about Australia today. So what, it's almost 10 years since Santa Maria died. So let's, uh, let's just look at, at some of the areas of the Australian economy. Let's look at debt, manufacturing industry, agriculture, jobs and public infrastructure. Now this graph is putting the total Australian liabilities over the total economy from 1988 up until today. So that naught, if you look at the, uh, the horizontal axis, naught on the left-hand side there, on the horizontal axis, that's 1988. And over here, that's today. So uh, that figure, the percentage of GDP, in other words, the total Australian liabilities as the percentage of the total economy in 1988 was 89%. 
Now, the total Australian liabilities as a percentage of GDP <coughs> is approaching 350%. So, at debt position, our liabilities are going through the roof. So, I don't know what you think when you see that. This is government and personal debt. Yes. Yeah, 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 it is, but, but it's mostly private. Yeah, it's foreign debt. It's, there's a lot of state, the state debts in that, but the, most of it is private. And brought in by Australian banks uh, to be lent to the private sector in Australia. So that's, that's what's happening to our debt situation. Now, I don't know how you read that, but... Um, how are you going to pay it off? Well, see, it's, it's been totally ignored. Um, those figures, I, I got them from David Penny, uh, in Western Australia, uh, and I'll just read to you quickly what he says. See, he, he believes that this is totally unsustainable and, and uh, we, we're going to go into a debt crisis. Now, many countries have gone into debt crises, even in recent times. Uh, he, he believes that Australia will go into a debt crisis and that other Western, a number of other Western countries will also. And um, just quickly, here are some of the things he says. If we, ha if we go as a result of this into a global economic depression, the impact on it'll impact on Australia in five ways. And I'll just read this quickly. The entire Australian economy and employment will stagnate. There will be demands for Australia to pay off its huge and growing international debts. Three, the number of bankruptcies will skyrocket because of the high level of debts and some banks and other financial institutions will cease to exist causing the savings of many citizens to vanish. Four, many foreign investors in Australian property shares and businesses will suddenly take their money out of Australia. Number five, the service fees for privatised industries such as phone, water, electricity, transport will multiply three or fourfold. Now, not, not everyone would agree with him, but that's, one, that's what one analyst says. So, that's one of... The implications, I think, of the sort of economic policy. Pardon? When might this happen? No one knows. I mean, I mean, the problem with the subprime thing in the United States at the moment has already had some impacts in Australia. You ask ask people who have invested in, um, in Macquarie Bank's uh, fortress notes; they've halved in value. Uh, so we don't know. We, I mean, it, it's hung together. The Australian economy and the world economy has hung together much longer than most people thought it would. Well, again, let's go back to my first three questions I asked you at the beginning of the talk. I mean, the, this raises an issue for most of us. One, at the personal level, what do we do about our own economics and financial situation? And secondly, what should Australia do? So, um, they're both worth thinking about. What, what do you do with your own personal finances? Well, the first thing is you get out of debt. You've got any debts, don't have any debts. Get out of debt. Um, I think money in uh, cash in really strong institutions like one of our four banks would probably be OK. Um, a number of people say, well, look, hard assets are better than paper assets. And it's probably right. So uh, bullion, real estate... Uh, valuable stamps and collectives items, those kind of things, they're probably going to be better than paper money. So. Okay. Oh, I, I'd better move on. Uh, so, so, so that's one thing. Um, 
Now another thing following this brand of economics. What about jobs? Wonderful performance. 4.4% 4, 4 unemployment. Well, I think you've got to look at that a bit carefully. I mean, I, uh, I mean, if somebody does one hour or two hours work per fortnight, they're counted as employed. Uh, Ian Campbell from uh, the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology says that there are 7% of the workforce, which is 800,000 people, who are underemployed. In other words, there are 800,000 people in Australia who have got some work, but they'd like to have more work. They just haven't got enough work. Uh, that figure of 7% underemployment in today, in 1980, that figure was only 2%. The Smith family says that 18% of kids in Australia belong to jobless households. Uh, they go home to a home where there's no one's got a job. So that's 680,000 children, or 18% of the total number of kids in Australia. In manufacturing. Um, in 1980, manufacturing was 20% of the economy. Today, it is 11% of the economy and going down. Uh, there's an organisation, a steel-making organisation in Australia, a former part of BHP called Blue Scope Steel. It's run by an American called Kirby Adams. And he has said that unless Australia does something about its manufacturing industry, we will be the first Western country, the first country in the OECD where manufacturing constitutes less than 10% of GDP. Um, and we used to be... Uh, we, were, we were one of the better manufacturing countries in, in, in the West. We were quite a good manufacturing country. Uh, now, agric uh, agriculture. I looked at the figures of net, net profit on farms in Australia uh, for the last 30 years. And at least half of the graphs that I studied from Abair, the last, at least half of the last 30 years, the farms are operating at a loss. And when they make a profit, it's $10,000 per farm or $20,000 or maybe $30,000 per farm. So I've run a number of people in agriculture uh, and I said, well, how are these people surviving? I'm talking about broad-scale agriculture. This is the major, major category in Australia. These are, these are people in dry land farming. They've got sheep, cattle and crops. This is the main category in agriculture in every, every state in Australia. So I asked the question, how are they surviving? And the answer I got was, well, uh, a lot of them are on welfare. They do get welfare payments now. They used not to, but they get welfare payments now. And the other thing that's sort of keeping them going is, uh, as some of you will know, their land value is going up. I mean, these are people that have got no money, but they, their land is, in some cases, worth millions of dollars. Every case, it's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, but in many cases, millions of dollars. The land value is going up. Uh, why is that? Well, you know, especially in tough economic times, people, city people buy land, people come in from Singapore and China and all sorts of parts of the world and buy land. So the land value has gone up. But agriculture is in dire straits. Yeah. Uh, not only uh, can we no longer export 
the way we used to, more and more of the products in our supermarkets are imported from overseas. I'm amazed at the number of products that say made in Australia from local and imported ingredients. Like years ago, you would never see made in Australia from imported ingredients. You know, this, this is not... See, remember part of the new brand of economics is to get rid of protection? Well, the reality is, as some of you will know, that in all of Europe, all the EEC, in the United States, in Japan and South Korea, agriculture is heavily protected. There's a bloke, some of you know, Bob Catter, the member for Kennedy, independent member for Kennedy in Queensland. Catter's been carrying a document around for the last five years saying, look, the typical farmer in these competing countries to Australia gets 15 or 20% of their income from government. Our farmers can't compete with that in the long term. Our farmers have got to go broke. And he's absolutely right. And they're going broke. And yet we have governments, including the National Party, that want to take away protection. Because all forms of protection are wrong. So what we've got in Australia, when I was uh, a young fellow, Australia had a strong agriculture and a strong manufacturing industry. Uh, both those major parts of the economy are in trouble now. And we're depending on a service sector and a lot of the, a lot of the money that supports the service uh, sector apparently is quite transient. If there's a downturn, some of the money can go out very quickly. And, and the mining sector. And the boom in the mining sector, as you all know, won't go on forever. It never has before, so it won't go on forever. So, well, now... The other big negative area out of, of the type of economics we've got is infrastructure. Roads, rail, bridges, hospitals, schools, etc. Now I haven't got figures for you on that, but I think you all know from news bulletins and so on that public infrastructure has been allowed to run down. I mean, state governments, uh, historically in Western countries, a lot of their money for public infrastructure has come to borrowing. Now in New South Wales, for years under the Carr government, we just didn't borrow. You know, borrow was against the economic ideology, so we didn't borrow. So infrastructure has had to suffer. So our, our roads, our, our bridges, uh, public transport, etc. suffered. Anyhow, look, what, what, I, what I've been saying, I, Maybe I'm just far too pessimistic about everything, but I, I mean I think we need alternative, alternative policies that have brought this situation about. I mean it's just amazing that um, I mean if the Labor Party had a different economic ideology, they'd be pointing these things out. But they haven't. They're basically, I mean when Rudd started off, he, start, he said some encouraging things about industry policy, etc. But he seems to have gone quiet on all that. And so we've got our major political parties in Australia still under the influence, uh, domination, I think it's the word, of the same economic ideology. The, the pressing need for Australia, if we look at it from a national point of view, is to develop alternative policies. And if we had 50, 60, 70 or 80 people really committed to do that, Sorry. we could do it. For committed people to develop alternative policies for Australia and to get public acceptance of those policies because the politicians follow public opinion. Well, thanks very much, Jim.
You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Jim Mannery. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.